0: Good evening. I'm looking forward to this evening and sharing some things that were pointed out to me, mostly. I'd like to begin with a quote this evening. This is something to hold in in your mind as we go throughout the evening and try to make application right here, right now, before you leave. And here's the quote. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. That's more than a big circle. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, I'm curious. Did you notice this box up here? (laughs) Well, I didn't really want you to notice the box. I don't actually want you to notice just the cage but keep listening. This is Andy, and Andy was at his grandpa's place for the summer. We have to start before he got in the cage. He worked himself in there. But he loved everything about grandpa's farm. He loved the farm, he loved grandma, he loved grandpa, he loved grandma's cooking, her cookies, her candy dish. He loved the dog, he loved the cows. He loved the ducks, he loved the pond and the creek. In fact, he even loved Grandpa and Grandma's cat, which is kind of strange because Andy never enjoyed cats until he got to Grandpa's that summer. But Grandpa bought him a slingshot, one something that looked a little like this. So you, you pull back, you know, you maybe run one of those ready, and you put a stone in there, you go, poof, and go pooh, and pooh. It didn't really do much because the stones would often go this way and that, depending on the shape of the stone. But Andy enjoyed shooting his slingshot around the farm there. And one day, he was coming in for supper. And he just sort of took a pot shot, random shot, at one of Grandma's ducks. Now, he loved the ducks. I already said that. But it was just kind of an impulsive thing, you know. And would you know, he hit it. And the duck fell over, and its feet went up in the air, and there it lay, dead. Dead. Now what are you gonna? Now what's Andy gonna do? So he got that duck and he carried it behind the woodpile and he stuffed it back in there where he thought nobody would see it. And then he went in and had supper. But it felt horrible. Oh, it was awful because he was acting a lie. And he could just remember seeing that duck like this, and it was Grandma's duck. It was a duck that she had cared for ever since it had hatched, and oh, it, it was bad. But it got worse. When it was time for dishes that evening after supper, you see, Andy, uh, Andy's sister Ann was also there at Grandpa's. And when Grandma said, Well, Ann, it's time to do the dishes, Ann said, Oh, Andy said he's going to help tonight. Andy goes, And Ann goes, Doc.
1: <laughs>
0: you see, Ann had seen what happened. A little while later, the next day, it was time to wash the kitchen floor, and Grandma said, Ann, we're going to wash the kitchen floor, the bucket's over here. Ann said, oh, Andy said he wants to do it, and she looked at him and says, "Duck." She just had him over the barrel. I mean, it was bad, because she was using this to her advantage for things other than just chores, who got the last It who got to ride it up front to go to town, it went on and on. You see what happened to Andy Summer? Now let's make it clear. He put himself in that cage when he didn't confess what he did. And then the cage got worse when Anne was using it to her advantage. But there he was. What happened to his lovely summer? He's in the cage of guilt. I think all of us know something about this cage. It doesn't feel good. Things that are lovely turn unlovely. And you just can hardly enjoy life anymore. And it it just went on and on. And Anne was there to keep making it worse and worse, and finally he decided, you know what, I'm done with this cage of guilt. I want out. So he went to Grandma. He said, Grandma, he said, I I gotta tell you, I know what happened to one of those ducks that was missing you were talking about the other day. He said, I shot it with my slingshot. And he confessed the whole story, and this is what happened to the cage of guilt. He's free. And you know what Grandma said? She said, I know. She said, I saw that happen from the window. And she said, I was just waiting to see how long it would be till you would come and confess it. Do you notice the wisdom? He that covereth his sins, the Bible says, shall not prosper. If therefore the Son shall make you free, ye shall be
1: free indeed. As I mentioned this afternoon, one of the Proverbs says that the wealth spring of wisdom is as a flowing brook. And as we reach selections, we need to be alert to see what we can take away from them. Sometimes we simply gain insight, and sometimes it helps us get perspective and see how other people see us. Did you ever wonder how other people see you? This is a short selection from a book entitled Young Fu of the Upper Yangtze by Pearl Buck, written in 1932. Uh, The main character is Young Fu, and he's an apprentice working with a journeyman, a brass maker in a brass maker's shop, and they're Chinese, and everybody's Chinese, but one day something strange happened. A white man walked in. So I begin reading. Young Fu turned to the journeyman beside him. Is, is that a man? Zen left. Truly you are from the country. Have you never seen a foreigner before? Not so close. And if it is a man, even you will agree that he wears the jacket and loose trousers of a woman. All of their men dress in this fashion, he, they, his friend said. And the women clothe their bodies in men's skirts. Everything they do is the opposite of accepted custom. The women all have feet as large as coolies, and they go about, even the young ones, in open chairs that expose their faces to the gaze of the world. The shoes they wear have thin pegs under the heels to make them taller, I suppose, though heaven knows they are ungainly enough by nature, and their hair flies loosely about their faces and they laugh and talk as freely as a man. But they are as, other, as all other barbarians, they have no polite rules of conduct, and we of the Middle Kingdom can feel pity. The boy listened attentively, but his eyes never left the figure in the store. The foreigner moved restlessly about the room, pointing out objects with a long stick and refusing to sit down and drink tea, which is what any Chinese gentleman would have done in the same circumstances. I like not his face, young poot. Who told the journeyman, the skin is white uh, with bristles and resembles a porty-plucked fowl and his nose is twice the size of what it should be. Zin went on with his work. I felt the same about the first one I saw. When he opened his mouth to smile, he was so ugly I thought it would kill me. But I am used to them now, and while I see no good in them, I do not believe with the women that they cause bad fortune. Indeed, They are too stupid for any sensible man to fear. With money they are fools, paying coolies for every service twice what they ought to receive. But they are rich, and silver means nothing to them. They have meat every meal, it is said, and the choicest vegetables and fruit. Even the poorest among them lives like a mandarin. And then this man made a purchase, and that evening young Fu went home, Uh, to his mother, his uh, father had passed away, that's why he was uh, an apprentice. That night, Young Fu told his mother, today a foreign man bought a tray in our store. He did not see you, I hope. Uh, He did. Tang told me to carry brasses into his presence. Also he spoke to me. At his mother's exclamation of fright, he reassured her. Do not fear, he was, he was ugly but harmless. When did you acquire so much wisdom? Already you copy these city people. You are like a man who sits at the bottom of the well and boasts about his knowledge of the world. No one now is wise save those within the walls of the brass shop. But in the country we still know a few things, and one is that foreign barbarians should be avoided." So there you get perspective. You can just think what you want to think, but this is in fact the way some people thought of foreigners, and those foreigners happen to be people like us. My wife and I and Christopher Slayball were just in Congo a few weeks ago, and we, uh, <clears throat> they were taking us to visit a few people, and we walked into one house, and the people greeted us. and. Uh, Two the, in the family were little children. One was probably a year old and the other a year and a half. A mother was holding one, father was holding another. As they came and greeted us, the children were terror struck. There was no other word for it. They bared their faces in their mother's uh, and father's shoulders and, and, and shrieked in terror at seeing a foreigner. And so as we think of foreigners, we are foreigners to somebody. And if you're ever going to approach a foreigner, just remember how difficult it may be for him to to see you and how he might be seeing you.
0: This is a story from Africa, titled The Long Handled Hoe." I must tow the field, said mother. You must come with me, Kasala. I need you to watch the baby. I am getting too big to go to the field with girls and women, thought Kasala. But he said to Mother, I am bigger than I was last summer, so soon I can go hunting with the men. I will not need to watch the baby when you hoe with the girls and women. Then who will watch him for me, said Mother. We have no girls in our family to do that. I cannot work fast with the baby on my back. So Mother and Kasala went outside the village to the field. Baby brother was tied to Mother's back. On Mother's head was a basket with their lunch, but it never fell off, no matter how much it bobbled. At the field, mother set down the lunch basket. She put the baby on the grass. Now watch him, she said. You are a good help, Kasala. I can work so much faster when I do not have the baby on my back. Mother took the hoe. She went down the corn row, chop, chop, chop. She had to bend way over because the handle of the hoe was just about two feet long. All the women in the village had hoes with short handles. All the women bent over as they worked. Kasala had never seen any other kind of hoe. As Kasala watched his mother, he thought of something. His friend Jara had said, One time the hunters went far over three mountains. They went to a village, and there they saw women who worked in the fields, but they had hoes with long handles. The women stood straight when they hoed. A teacher from afar over the sea had showed them the strange new kind of hoe. Kasala thought, How fine it would be. If mother had a long-handled hoe, then she could stand straight when she heard. Then her back would not hurt at night. And then all at once he thought, maybe I could make her a long-handled hoe. I will ask father to help, I will surprise her. That night he told father about the long-handled hoe. I want to make one for mother, he said. Father said, my mother used a short-handled hoe. My grandmother used a short-handled hoe. No one in our tribe ever used a long-handled hoe. New ways are not always good, but a long-handled hoe might be good. I will see what we can do. Kasala slipped into the mud hut and got the short-handled hoe. Mother was outside making supper over the fire. Father and Kasala went to a place where mother could not see them. Father took out the short handle. He made a new long one. He fit the new long handle into the hoe. Kasala tried out the hoe that evening. It worked fine. He hid the hoe where Mother would not see it before morning. Would she like the new way of hoeing? In the morning, Mother said, I must tow the field again. Come with me, Kasala. I need you to watch the baby. Kasala quickly ran and got the new, long-handled hoe. Let's go, he said with a smile. He watched Mother's face. Mother's eyes got big. She looked and looked at that hoe. What do you have? What have you done to my hoe? Father and I have made it much better, Kasala said. It is a new kind. You will not need to bend over with this one. Come, I will show you how it works. Kasala could hardly wait to get to the field. He would show mother how to use that new hoe. He would chop weeds without bending over. Boys and men did not work in the fields, but just this once, he would hoe to show mother the new way. At the fields, he started down the road with a new hoe. Chop, chop, chop. The weeds fell thick and fast. Chop, chop. Other women and girls were coming to the field now, and what did they see? A boy hoeing. He was not leaning over at all. What did he have? Such a long-handled hoe. Where did it come from? What new way was this? This is a fine new way, laughed Kasala. Mother, you just sit and watch the baby. I shall hoe one row. A boy can use this new kind of hoe. Kasala got to the end of his row before any of the women. See the new kind of hoe is better he said. Mother could hardly wait to try out the long-handled hoe. Kasala gave it to her. Then he sat in the shade and watched. Chop, chop, chop. She did not bend over. She stood straight and tall as she chopped. Her back will not hurt tonight, thought Kasala with a smile. New ways can be good. Did you notice what brought about this story? It was that Kasala was looking out for his mom, Right? It's, when I was his age, I don't know how old he was, but I didn't really enjoy working so much with my mother, especially when I was about the age that I could start working with the men and the older young men. But it's good and wise when children obey their mother, and look how he was thinking out for his mother, and that brought about the invention of the long-handled hoe. Did you notice that?
1: There are two kinds of men who never amount to much. Those who cannot do what they are told and those who can do nothing else. Those who cannot do what they are told and those who can do nothing else. My father sometimes pointed one of those, one of those two pieces out to me when I was about 12 or 13. It was in this form he said must i tell you every move to make and a person should get to a point that he can notice a few things that need to be done and do them one form that wisdom takes is maxims sayings that staying with you for life as i was preparing for this evening why i was reminded of a book that my cousin gave me when i was 20 years old well springs of wisdom and I pulled it out off the shelf and browsed through it. And I was reminded, as I read through this, I remembered having read most of these stories. And I realized that the truth of them was embedded in my, in my thinking in a subconscious way that influenced me to this day, even though I might not remember all the stories. So I'll give you two short selections here. Many times, wisdom is illustrated in, in uh, everyday life. The first one is called The Magic Sticks. When an Oriental prince awoke one morning and discovered some of his costly possessions were missing, he summoned his wise men and asked them to find the thief. Most of the wise men did no more than suggest the obvious procedures. But the wisest of the wise men said, I'll find the thief with my magic sticks. When one of these sticks is placed near a thief overnight, the stick grows two inches. Put your servants in separate cells, and I'll put a magic stick in each cell. In the morning, the thief will be revealed. The prince agreed. The next morning, the sticks were gathered and measured, and one stick was found to be two inches shorter than the others. What kind of nonsense is this, demanded the prince. You said one of the sticks would grow longer. Uh, True, your majesty, that's what I said. Nevertheless, it has worked as I expected. There is the thief. And he pointed to the man who had handed in the shorter stick. The accused servant promptly confessed, explaining that he knew that if any of the sticks grew longer, it would be the one in his cell. The agony I went through last night was terrible, he said. I kept looking at this stick to see if it would expose me, and I thought I saw it begin to grow. I became so utterly convinced in my guilt that it was increasing in length that I finally cut off two inches so it would be the same size as the others. The wise man knew the workings of conscience. And then the second short one here is called Practical Sympathy. Years ago, in the English town of Rochdale, Jacob Bright, a mill owner and father of the famous statesman John Bright, was walking up the hill from town to his home when he encountered a poor farmer in serious trouble. The poor man's horse had broken a leg and had to be destroyed. People stood around the distraught farmer telling him how sorry they were at his great loss. As soon as Jacob Wright took in the situation, he removed his hat, placed five pounds, pounds—and that's money, five pounds, in it, and said to the sympathetic bystanders, I'm sorry, five pounds for our neighbor. How sorry are you? He then passed the hat, and collectively and collected enough money for the man to buy another horse. I don't know that I remembered where I read that, but I've often thought of how, when there's, when there's a need somewhere, how sorry am I? Uh, and are you $5 sorry, $10 sorry, $50 sorry? How sorry are you for that person in need? Moving right along with that theme, I'd like to share with you the
0: story of one Aaron Rempel. Aaron Rempel lived in Russia, near the city of Nordenfeld in the early 1900s. Uh, this story comes from the CLE eighth grade reader, the one that was shared about the uh, long-handled hood. Oh, came from the second grade reader. Back to Aaron Rempel. Aaron Rempel was a prosperous Mennonite farmer in Russia, he owned a large farm. He had far so large that Tsar uh, Nikolai II used to come out to hunt on his farm. Uh, one day, as Aaron Rempel was walking home from the little town of Noddenfeld, he heard something, something uh, in the distance that sounded different, and it sounded a little like this: "Hoo, oh, oh. Where is that coming from? Well, it looks like it. sounds like it was coming from the railroad. And sure enough, over on the railroad, there was a number of cattle cars that were hitched together, and there were people inside those cattle cars calling for help. Those people were soldiers. They were Bolshevik soldiers, and it was sort of a civil war at that time where the Bolsheviks were trying to overthrow the existing government But they had gotten overpowered in this battle, and they were loaded up on these cattle cars, and as prisoners of war were being shipped to Siberia. So Aaron went over, and there were arms reaching through the slats, saying, We're hungry. Give us some food. Well, Aaron had just bought a sack full of food for his family, and he got out a dry sausage and gave it to the reaching hand, and it went in, and it came right back out again empty. Wanting more. So Aaron gave the man some bread and it went right back in and came back out again. And so he gave the man some of his cheese. In fact, he gave him all his cheese. And the hand went in and it came right back out again. And so he gave him some fruit and it went on like that until Aaron had nothing else to give. And the men inside the car told Aaron, Thank you. Thank you. They were so happy to have some food. And Aaron didn't think much more about it because Aaron was a Christian man, and he did that kind of thing because he had the love of God in his heart. Well, uh, it wasn't too long later until the Bolsheviks, the one whose soldiers were in that car, they gained the upper hand, and they overthrew the existing government. And the Bolsheviks were people that went around and tried to bring equality to everything and everybody. And so the rich people, like Aaron Rempel, the ones that were well off, were the ones that were targeted. And the Bolsheviks one night beat their way into Rempel's house. And since Aaron was a godly man and did not resist, they did not kill him. But rather, they put him on a train and shipped him and his family, his brothers and their family, to Siberia. When they got there, it wasn't like they were living in a concentration camp. They were more exiled than working in a concentration camp and but their life was hard it was very difficult but Rempel did not sit around and pity himself he tried to make the best of the situation and so they were existing there but it was very very cold and they did not have a lot of food and one day one of Aaron's sons said what I wouldn't do for a good flask of hot tea and that got Aaron to thinking You know what? If I could bring tea into this area, I would surely have a good market for tea. The next day, he went with his neighbor to a town in Siberia there, and there was a Mongolian merchant selling tea, and Aaron bought it all, the whole sack full. And he made arrangements to buy all that he could get the next week. And it wasn't long until Enterprising Rempel had a business selling tea. And his sons were busy, he was busy, and they were glad to have work and to get some income, But the problem was, is this was illegal activity. It was capitalistic. And so therefore, they were not allowed to have their own business. And one of Aaron's former neighbors evidently reported Aaron and his sons to the authorities. And it wasn't long after that one night, the local police came in and hauled Aaron out of his house in his pajamas to jail because he was an outlaw because of his selling of tea. For quite a number of weeks, Aaron waited trial, and he only had on uh, thin clothes, he wasn't fed well, but again he tried to trust the Lord for his future, and finally the trial came, and he was found to be guilty, and Aaron was to be sentenced in three weeks, but because Aaron was a cooperative prisoner, they allowed him to go home and live with his family until that sentencing. So... I'm going to read now, can you imagine you or your dad knowing that in three weeks you're going to be sentenced, and the kinds of sentences were pretty tough, 50 years in Siberia in hard labor, Um, death by hanging and such, but I'm reading now, finally the clerk called Aaron Rempel. The clerk repeated the charge and the verdict, guilty. The judge was about to rattle off the sentence when he looked up for the first time at the man before him. His eyes narrowed on the tea criminal. Aaron thought there was a look of special scorn in them. "'What do you have to say about this serious crime?' the judge asked. "'I thought it was right to provide for my own household,' Aaron said, "'and I can only do as God leads.' The judge stared at Aaron. "'Where have we met?' he demanded. "'I don't believe we have, I've ever seen you before, sir,' Aaron replied." But I have seen you, the magistrate insisted. For a moment, he thought, and then, were, were you ever in Nordenfeld?" Well, yes, said Aaron. I was born there and spent my whole life in Nordenfeld before I was exiled here. Do you remember one night speaking with a prisoner in a cattle car? Well, yes, Aaron said. How does the judge know about that? I gave the man there a little food because he said he was hungry. I was that man said the judge. I was so hungry. You did not have to do anything for me. But yet, you gave me all of your food to eat. Aaron waited, hearing only the sound of the wind sweeping past the windows. At last, the judge spoke. What would you like me to do for you, comrade Rempel? I can give you immigration papers. Where would you like to go? America? Yes, to America, Aaron said, adding quickly, and sir, would you provide papers for my family as well, for my brothers and their families? Yes, the judge said, whatever you wish. I will do whatever I can for the man who fed me when I was hungry. Where's the wisdom? I think it's pretty evident. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it again after many days. No act of kindness, no matter
1: how small, is ever wasted. My next selection is from the world of nature. There's a famous entomologist, insect, student of insects and nature named Jean Henri Faber. This was written in 1917. He wrote a book called Insect Adventures. And he writes here about this, the hairy sand wasp. Now this wasp prepares a cell, it lays an egg in the cell, and then it looks for food to to put in that cell, and then it's going to close the entrance to the cell, and then when the egg hatches out, it's supposed to have food to eat. And the particular food that it likes to feed it is a caterpillar, and of course this caterpillar can't be dead, because if it's dead, it would putrefy and wouldn't be available, so somehow it has to paralyze that caterpillar so the caterpillar can patiently wait in there until the egg hatches out and then eats it alive. So this is a bit gory, but uh, this is called the attack. And what he's done, he's watching a, a sand wasp prepare the caterpillar to be put into the cell. The sand wasp seizes the caterpillar by the back of the neck with the curved pincers of her jaws. The gray worm struggles violently, rolling and unrolling its body. The wasp is quite unconcerned. She stands aside and thus avoids the shocks. Her sting strikes the caterpillar at the joint between the first ring and the head. In the middle of the underside, at a spot where the skin is more delicate, This is the most important blow, the one which will master the gray worm and make it more easy to handle. The sand wasp now leaves her prey. She flattens herself on the ground with wild movements, rolling on her side, twitching and dangling her limbs, fluttering her wings as though in danger of death. I'm afraid that the huntress has received a nasty wound in the contest. I am overcome with emotion at watching the plucky wasp finish so piteously, but suddenly the wasp recovers, smooths her wings, curls her antenna, and returns briskly to the attack. What I had taken for the convulsions of approaching death was actually the wild enthusiasm of victory. The wasp was congratulating herself on the way she had floored the enemy. Now the wasps grips the caterpillar by the skin of the back a little lower than before and pricks the second ring still on the underside. I then see her gradually going back along the gray worm each time, seizing the back a little lower down, clasping it with the jaws, those wide pinchers, and each time driving the sting into the next ring. In this way are wounded the first of the three rings with the true legs, the next two rings, which are legless, and the four rings with the prolegs, which are not real legs, but simply little protuberances. In all, nine stings. After the first prick of the needle, the gray worm offers but a feeble resistance. Lastly, the sand wasp, opening the forceps of her jaws to their full width, seizes a caterpillar's head and crunches it, squeezing it with a series of leisurely movements without creating a wound. She pauses after each squeezing as if to learn the effect produced. She stops, uh, waits, and begins again. This handling of the brain cannot be carried too far or the insect would die. And strange to say, the wasp does not wish to kill the caterpillar. The surgeon has finished. The poor patient, the worm, lies on the ground on its side, half doubled up. It is motionless, lifeless, unable to resist when the waltz drags it to the burrow, unable to harm the grub that is to feed upon it. This is the purpose of the waltz's proceedings. She's procuring food for her babies, which are as yet non-existent. She will drag the caterpillar to her burrow, lay an egg upon it. When the grub comes out of the egg, it will have the caterpillar to feed upon. But suppose this caterpillar were active. One movement of his body would crush the egg against the wall of the cell. No, the caterpillar must be motionless. But it must not be dead, for if it were, it would speedily decay and be unfit for eating for the fastidious little grub. The wasp, therefore, drives her poisoned sting into the nerve centers of every segment whose movement could hurt the grub baby. She does better than that. The victim's head is still unhurt. The jaws are at work. They might easily, as the caterpillar is dragged to the burrow, grip some bit of straw in the ground and stop progress. The caterpillar, therefore, must be rendered torpid, and the wasp does this by munching his head. She does not use her sting on the brain because that would kill the caterpillar. She merely squeezes it enough to make the caterpillar unconscious. Though we admire the wonderful skill of the wasp, uh, we cannot help feeling a little story for the victim, the poor gray worm. If we were farmers, however, we should not waste any pity on the worm. These caterpillars are a dreadful scourge to agricultural crops as well as to garden produce. Curled in their burrows by day, they climb to the surface at night and gnaw the base or the collar of plants. Everything suits them, ornamental plants, edible plants alike, flower beds, market gardens, plants in the fields. When a seedling withers without apparent cause, draw it to you gently, and the dying plant will come up, but maimed, cut from its root. The gray worm has passed that way in the night. Its greedy jaws have cut the plant. It is as bad as the white worm, the grub of the cockchafer. When it swarms in a beet country, the damage amounts to millions. This is a terrible enemy against which the sand wasp comes to our aid. Let us not feel too sorry for it. As you read that, You recognize the drama that's going on around us in the world all the time. You know, we live in a broken world. I don't know that God intended for this kind of violence to ever occur in his world. But there we can see one result of living in a world of that's very much out of kilter. And the the caterpillars, left unchecked, would ruin our crops. And it's something how, even after the fall, God has managed it, that many of these critters, these wasps, caterpillars, and so on, they keep things in balance. And we see unhappy violence occurring on the insect level. And, but we also see a balance here that keeps things uh, con- conserved around us, or keeps things in balance. There's a lot to think about there, and don't feel too sorry for the, for the worm. Without the wasp, we wouldn't have any crops.
0: Next story I'd like to tell you is one that Leo Tolstoy wrote. I believe it uh, was probably entirely fiction, but I really don't know. The story is about a king who had three very important questions that he really, really wanted to know the answers for, it occurred to him that if he would know the right time to do everything, and if he would know who are the most important people, and if he would know what is the most important thing to do, if he would know the, the answers to those three things, why then he would be able to have a very successful life, because he would not fail in anything that he tried to do or any people that he tried to relate to, and so on. So he offered a great reward to anyone in his kingdom that could tell him who is the most important people, what is the right time for every action, and what is the most important thing to do. So all sorts of learned men came to the king, and they all had their ideas. Some said to know the right time for every action, you have to get a table and you have to lay it out in days and months and years and then live a strictly according to that table what you pre-decided is the best um, for you to be doing. Um, and thus everything could be done at its proper time. But then other people said, no, no, that's not going to work because how can you know beforehand what to put on the table? Um, so therefore, um, rather what you should just do is stay busy and do the next thing first, as it were. And others said that, well, one man can't decide alone, so what the king needs really is a, is a council of men to tell him what to do and when to do it and what's most important. And then there were more that said, all you people have it wrong because since we just don't know anything beforehand, why only the magicians know that kind of stuff, so you really need a group of magicians that will tell you what to do. And the king got discouraged with his answers, and he gave no one the prize. Now, in relation to the second question, who are the most important people? Some people said it was the king's counselors. Others said it was priests. Others said it was doctors. But yet there were still others that said, oh, no, it's the warriors in the kingdom. And so the king, being confused, gave no one the prize. In relation to the third question, was well, some people said that the most important thing is science, and others said, oh, no, it's skill, skill and warfare. And then there were others that said, no, it's religious worship and things that relate to religious worship. That's most important. And again, since all the answers were different, the king agreed with none of them and no one got the prize. And so here we are at the same place we were at the beginning of the story. We have a king with three important questions, no answers, and he still wants to know. So he heard that there was a hermit that lived way out in the, uh, in the nether regions, I suppose, where Uh, this man was famed for his wisdom. So he decided he's going to dress up in simple plain clothes so nobody can recognize him, and he's going to go ask the hermit the answer to these three questions. So making a long journey there, finally he got there, and there was the hermit, a rather frail man, running a hoe. I don't know if it was a long-handled hoe or not, probably, if he was wise. But the king asked him these three questions, and the hermit simply didn't respond. But since the king knew that he was a wise man, he didn't just want to leave right away, so he told the hermit, he said, here, I'll hoe for you a bit. And he hoed for the hermit, waiting for the hermit to answer his three questions. But the hermit remained quiet. And finally, the king said, "Uh, really, I I really wanted to know the answer to these three questions, but if you're not going to answer, well, then I guess I'm just going to have to go Um, maybe you can't tell me either. Nobody else could up to this point. And then the hermit spoke. He said, here comes someone running. And the king looked, and sure enough, here came a man running, and he was holding his stomach, and here he had a large wound in his stomach that was uh, nearly fatal. And so the the king and the hermit um, dressed this man's wound and and washed washed it up and laid him in bed. And that was that. And the king still didn't have the answer to his questions, but it being nighttime, the king decided he might as well stay the night, and the hermit said he was welcome to do that. When the king woke up in the morning, he woke up feeling that he was being watched. He was. It was a man that had been wounded. And the man was looking at him, but not in a mean way. He was looking at him in a kind way. And the first words that were said that morning were said not by the king, but by the man who had been wounded. He said, Forgive me, king. And remember, the man was the king was in plain clothes. And the king says, so why do I need to forgive you? Well, he said, I know you're the king. And he said, you passed a judgment against my brother and had him executed for crime. And I was going to settle my grievance with you and kill you. But one of your bodyguards last night uh, saw me before I was able to catch up with you. And they're the ones that gave me this mortal wound. And you treated me so kindly, forgive me. And the king was a rather wise man and said, well, I'm very happy to forgive you. He was quite pleased to be able to make peace so easily with his enemy. And there wasn't much more to do. But the king still didn't have the answers to his questions. So he went out, and the hermit was out hoeing in his little garden patch again. And he approached... The hermit for the last time and said, I pray you answer my questions. And the hermit says, what? They've already been answered. The king said, how so? How, how is it? What do you mean? And I'm going to read the finish just as I did the last time. Do you not see, replied the hermit, if you had not pitied my weakness yesterday and had not dug these beds for me but had gone your way instead, that man would have attacked you and you would have... Repented of not staying with me. So the most important time was when you were digging the beds. And I was the most important man. And to do me good was your most important business. Afterwards, when that man ran to us, the most important time was when you were attending to him. For if you had not bound up his wounds, he would have died without having made peace with you. So he was the most important man. And what you did for him was your most important business. Remember then... There is only one time that is important. It is now. It is the most important time because it is the only time when we have any power. The most necessary person is the one with whom you are. For no man knows whether he will have any dealings with anyone else. And the most important thing to do is to do that person good because for that purpose alone was a man sent into
1: this life. The Blind Men and the Elephant It was six men of interest to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and, happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, oh, what have we here so very round and smooth and sharp? To me, it is mighty clear this wonder of an elephant it is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and, happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he, tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, In the blindest man can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I, she, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so... These men of India stand disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong." That uh, poem illustrates a truth that applies to many, many aspects of life. It actually is true that we can only see things from our perspective. I'm seeing you from a perspective up front here where I can look into all your faces. Those of you sitting in back cannot do that by virtue of where you are. And if I describe what I see, it's accurate because that's what I see. If you describe what you see, it's accurate because that's what you see. And yet, as we look at anything we discuss, and this applies to so many areas of life, When we describe things from our perspective, sometimes we absolutely need other people's perspective in order to understand the situation at hand. The blind man and the elephant describes a truth. There's wisdom there that we need to consider almost every day. At the end of
0: this uh, story, I'd like to ask you: What do you observe? What do you see? What do you notice? What is the wisdom or the takeaway? Last summer, um, I went back to Virginia for approximately a week, and I was there at CLE. And the host, the place where I stayed, was Roger Berry. I didn't know him before, but I mentioned to him the first evening that. My grandmother taught school in the Shenandoah Valley here somewhere, although I didn't know where. I just was making small talk. Well, Roger got a hold of that. And I was downstairs studying that evening, and he hollered down the stairs. He said, Jonathan, he said, how about a visit with one of your grandmother's former students? Well, sure, (laughs) it sounds interesting. My grandmother was born in 1908 and died in 1988. She lived the last 12 years of her life, the first 12 of mine, with us in our home. Well, the next evening, we went to visit Anna Rohr. Anna was 84 years old last summer. We got there, and on her kitchen counter, she had spread out quite a bit of school memorabilia. She had report cards there filled out from the 1930s. 1942 was the youngest one, or the most recent one, and my grandmother's signature on there was seen. Miss Garber, it was signed, because she was a Garber. This was before she was married. Also, she had some uh, various articles that were printed over the years about the school there in Rushville, Virginia. But the thing that I noticed and caught my attention most was a little motto about the size of the palm of my hand. If you can imagine an index card, a little wooden motto, Looked homemade. Probably was homemade. About a quarter inch thick, three by five, little hook in the top. Looked like she had gotten a calendar page and cut it out. My grandmother had probably and put it on that board and put some sort of sealer over it. And I was looking at this and I turned it over and it said on the back of that little motto. it said something I could hardly read, but I could make out something about to Anna B. or something, Anna's maiden name was Beery, and uh, Anna helped me read it. She said, what it says right here, since it was so faded, she says, it says, To Anna B., February 14, 1939, from Miss Scarborough, you have a happy, cheerful voice, and always do your lessons well. Oh, well, that's interesting. That artifact uh, is nearly 80 years old, over 75. And she still had it. But that wasn't the only wooden motto there. There was another one there almost like it. I picked up that one. And on the back of that one it said, To Fred Rohr, which was Anna's deceased husband. February 14, 1939. Same date, same year. You are willing to let the other one have the best. And you know how to work. I asked Anna, I said, so did she give everybody these mottos? She said, yes, yeah, she did. I said, one day she gave everybody these mottos. And she said, it, it really has meant a lot to me. I said, when I married Fred, I realized he still had his motto too. And so she said, I went out to the store and I got one of these little folding plastic brackets that have these little hooks here that you can set on a shelf. And she still had these little plastic brackets. She said, I, I put them up for display on our dresser And she said it had never been packed away before that. And she said it has never been packed away since. Said it was always where I could see it. And I thought, interesting. Never out of my sight. Never packed him away for over 75 years. The next evening, I got back to Roger Berry. And Roger said, "Uh, Jonathan, uh, would you mind going visiting another of your Grandma Herb's students? Uh former students. I said, well, sure, let's go. So this time we went to 94-year-old Joseph Beery, which was a uh, brother to Anna. And when I got there, he had laid out a bunch of school memorabilia, report cards, and various articles, and yes, a wooden motto of the same vintage. And before I picked it up, I asked him, I said, Joe, I said, do you know what this says? I didn't even look to see if it said anything on the back side. I said, Joe, do you know what this says on the back of this motto? And like a schoolboy who had learned his lesson well, as closely as I can say it, as verbatim in expression and content, he said, yes, I know what it says, and I've always tried to live by it. And I flipped it over, and this one said, to Joseph B., from Miss Scarborough, February 14, 1939. Your cheerful, helpful attitude helps us all to appreciate you. For over 75 years, he was trying to live by that advice and by that compliment. The wisdom, you frame it this time.
1: My next one is from the world of mathematics. God gives some people great understanding. Sometimes, sometimes a seemingly impossible question has a relatively simple answer, but not everybody can think of it. This is uh, Euclid's proof that prime numbers go on without any end. Now, a prime number is a number. Uh, half the numbers are even. And of those that are odd, some can be divided by other numbers. But then there are some numbers, like the number five, that can only be divided by one and by itself, five. And mathematicians have gone on and on, and they found that some really large numbers, and so we have numbers like 11 and then numbers like 17, and some really large numbers can only be divided by one and themselves, nothing else. And so the question is, is there any end out there? Well, you assume. You can always find a larger one, so Euclid set himself to prove to everyone's satisfaction that actually there is no largest prime number. His proof goes like this. Assume that prime numbers do end. Let the letter P stand for the largest prime number. And so we're going to say, this is the last one. It's P. And then we're going to take every other prime number that exists, take every single one of them, including then, which is the largest one, and we're going to multiply them together and get a really large number. Now, this number that we got, what can we say about it? Well, we're going to take that number and we're going to add one to it. And now we know that none of the prime numbers will divide into it evenly because it's, there's always going to be a remainder of one. And therefore, that number, which has a remainder of 1, does not have any of the others as factors. And so it must either be prime or else maybe uh, some prime number not in the list must divide into it. That was his, uh, his proof. My point there is that God gives some people ability to figure things out that most people just have no clue how to approach the problem All Right. the last
0: thing that i will share this evening is a poem written by george Bronk senior george Bronk senior was a mennonite pastor an influential mennonite pastor it was written about the times in which he lived this was almost a hundred years ago from we don't know exactly when this poem was written but it was very likely about a hundred years ago. It was a, he wrote a poem about American culture, and he also then switched from writing about American culture to how American culture is affecting our, uh, our churches and our congregations. And I want you to notice, as I read this poem, how far we've come in a hundred years. Looseness. This is an age of looseness and crime, from the heathen debased to the rich of the time. A tendency strong in church and the state is to go where you please and leave open the gate. It may be that old Dobbin, quite stiff in his knees, will stand in the park, though not tied to the trees. And Spitfire, the colt that will never be tame, has broken six halters and made himself lame. But will this be excuse to throw halters away, to let each horse decide where to go or to stay? Then why do men fight against law and good rules for the guidance of wise and restraining of fools. For horses or men, there is only one hope. If they break their restrictions, just double the rope. And if the good laws are wisely applied, they may learn how to stand without being tied. I dislike to see boys not high as your shoulder that know 10 times more than persons much older. And when father and mother lay down some restrictions, get pouty and sullen and begin to cause friction, I never saw master or miss such a saint, but that they were bettered by parents' restraint. But many a one to the gallows has come, for want of a law and a rod in the home. And then when it comes to the laws of the land, so many thus tied will not even stand. Some men for a dollar will take a man's life, or cheat him in trading, or marry his wife, or steal from his neighbor his chains or his axes, or give him short measure, or be dodging his taxes, But in spite of law-breaking, there is not a man not constantly helped by the laws of the land. In matters of church, we know very well, no law of itself can save one from hell. Yet by heeding good law, a man's ways are made clean, and pitfalls avoided that he never had seen. The flesh can be checked, and the conscience alarmed, and evil suppressed by which others are harmed. By law, man is brought on this side the grave to the point where the word and the spirit can save. Now if children are wiser than matron or sire, and safely can play with poison and fire, and loungers and stores with soapbox for stool, know better than Congress how nations to rule, and the wisdom of God in one single brother is greater than Bible and conference together, then nail up the church, lay the book on the shelf, and let every man be a law to himself. If opposers of law just only could see, they are cutting a limb twixt themselves and the tree. And if they succeed, they not only will fall, but down will come home, church, nation, and all. If men want no law but their own precious will, let them herd with the bushmen, till they get their fill. I think one such year would certainly end it. They would favor God's law and forever defend
1: it. My last piece is from an essay written by G. Campbell Morgan. Some excerpts from an essay he wrote called The Hidden Years at at Nazareth, about Jesus as a young man. Breaking into the middle here, it says, it is not given to every man or woman to serve God in public places. The great majority must live their lives outside any prominent sphere and as part of a very small circle of relatives and acquaintances, men will not hear even the names of the great mass of the people who are living their life throughout the world today. I want to know what there is in the life of Jesus that helps such persons. We are accustomed to think of him as one in a public ministry, as the man of the marketplace and the crowd, the teacher who spoke as never man spake, the healer whose whose touch brought life and blessing to hundreds, the man who rebuked sin in high places and spoke words of sweet pity and kindness to the child and the young disciple. But the greater part of his life was not lived in those places where we have grown most familiar with him, but in quiet seclusion where the great crowd of men and women will always live in this world. Yet, how little we know concerning that period. How meager is the biblical information that we have. Let us then try and see him in those 18 hidden years. That is the years from when he was 12 until he was about 30 and started his ministry. Take two statements of fact and fix them on your minds for a moment. Take two statements. These are quotes from the scripture. Number one. Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Number two, is not this the carpenter? These two passages supply the story of the 18 years. Jesus was a carpenter, pleasing God. The carpenter's shop was the will of God for him, and therefore he abode in that shop and did the work of a carpenter. Jesus taught us that all toil is holy if the toiler be holy. Not for the sake of controversy, but as a protest against the misconception of human life, I tell you that no man has any right simply because he preaches or performs certain functions to speak of himself as a man in, quote, holy orders. The man who goes out to work tomorrow morning with his bag on his back and his tools in it, if he be a holy man has claims to that distinction. And if that man go down into the carpenter's shop and saw a piece of timber, the saw is a vessel of the sanctuary if the man is a priest who uses it. All service is sacred service. No man is fit for the great places of service who has not fitted himself by fidelity in obscurity. The carpenter's shop made Calvary not a battlefield merely, but a day of triumph that lit heaven and earth with hope. And if you and I would triumph when our Calvary comes, we must triumph in the little things of the common hours. Most life is very daily. Most life is very routine. And actually, Jesus spent most of his years of manhood in the carpenter's shop, as far as we know. And then he went out to do some very important work. But those 18 years were important years. And when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus had not yet met Satan's temptation. He, had not. he was just ready to start his ministry. And God was pleased with his life at that point. That leaves us with some, a light shining on our daily work. It doesn't matter what your work is. You can be a student, you can be a farmer, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. And as we live unto the Lord, we can live in a way that God says, I am well pleased with your life.